Morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Pastor Stephen DeWitt. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using the Bible in front of you, it's on page 4. Uh, like Sam said, and the kids sang about, we're starting a new sermon series. We're calling Sunday School Stories. To do this, we're taking a little break from the lectionary. And we're going to look back at some of these very famous Bible stories that are famously taught to kids when they're in Sunday school. You know how um, there are some stories in the Bible that are just um, more interesting to and and more suitable for children than other stories in the Bible? Um, Like Samson, he was my guy when I was a kid. I I was a big Samson fan. Uh, the Battle of Jericho, Jonah and the Whale, a whole bunch of different ones. So these are the stories that the church traditionally tells children because they're very exciting and they're very dramatic and they're fun to imagine and they're, uh, they're plot-driven. And so kids like them and they latch onto them. However, uh, one thing that can easily happen is that we're taught these stories or maybe we're taught caricaturized versions of these stories when we're little kids. Um, And then we might not brush up against them again for a long time. Um, And then as we grow older, we might never see some of the meat and potatoes that is in that story that a child might have never picked up on and so might have never been taught to a child. Um, Because when you teach something to a child, uh, you teach it to them differently than you would an adult. For, for example, um, I know a, a mother whose three-year-old daughter asked her, Mommy, where do babies come from? And the mother said, Babies grow in mommy's tummies just like apples grow on apple trees. And I thought, that is lovely and wonderful. And true. And so a three-year-old hears that and she goes, oh, wow. And she understands something about where babies come from that she did not understand before. And that's just so wonderful. Um, But the thing is, at some point, you got to follow up on that conversation, right? (laughs) Uh, That conversation has to be revisited and it has to be built upon. It has to be further explained and further understood. It will always be true that babies grow in mommy's tummies just like apples grow on apple trees. That will always be true. But there's also a lot more truth to it. So let's explore some of that other truth. So that's what we're going to try to do in these Sunday school stories. We're going to revisit them and hopefully look at them with some fresh eyes and something of a developed perspective. So let's read this text. Genesis chapter 3, first 21 verses. Listen to God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. So here's how the story goes down. The serpent is telling Eve that it's actually a good idea to eat the fruit. And in verse 6, she looks around and she thinks about it and she takes a bite. And nothing really happened. And it tasted pretty good. And it even felt a little bit thrilling So she took the apple and she gave it, or the fruit, and she gave it to Adam. And he had a bite, and nothing really happened. And then in verse 7, uh-oh, wait a minute. Maybe things aren't exactly the same. Actually, 
They kind of take a sense of where they are and how things are going. And they have this sense that everything seems a little bit different. And they realize that they're naked, which is a strange thing to realize in the middle of the day. And they have this sudden compulsion. They have this sudden compulsion to make themselves not naked. So they do the first thing that comes to their minds and they find a bunch of fig leaves and they start to sew them together to make themselves not naked. And then in verse 8, I think I actually mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in a sermon, that this might be the saddest verse in the whole Bible. That Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden and they ran the other way. They hid from him. Think about the tragedy of that verse. As you read the story, as you read the text, you have this sense that this was probably a daily occurrence. It might have been a standing appointment that God would show up sometime around dinner time, flexible schedule. And then when Adam and Eve heard him walking through the garden, they'd go, Eve, Adam, he's here. And they'd go on a leisurely walk together. It was the creator and the creation in close proximity with each other, in a loving relationship with each other. But this time, instead of running to the presence of God, they ran away from the presence of God. Why did they hide? It's a really complex question. The simplest answer is this. They hid because they were naked. And they didn't like that. So um, back in chapter 2, it says that Adam and Eve were both naked. And about that, it says that they felt no shame in their nakedness. So what's happening in chapter 3 that wasn't happening before is that they suddenly felt shame. When they ate the fruit, shame came into the picture. Shame wasn't a factor before. Suddenly, shame is a very big issue. What is shame? Shame is the sense of being displeased with who you are at your very core. A person with shame doesn't just dislike some things about themselves. A person with shame is displeased with who they are at their core. And so Because we are people with shame, we are displeased with who we are, and we have this fear of being exposed or uh, being made vulnerable or suddenly becoming unprotected. We worry that people will see who we are and that they also will be displeased with who we are. Everyone has shame. Everyone. Some of us have a lot of shame. And when we're experiencing our shame, we do exactly what Adam and Eve do in Genesis 3. We try to cover ourselves up. When I don't like who I am, I will try to keep you from seeing me because I want to be desirable. I want to be lovable. I want to be respectable. And we can't have people see who we really are, 
So we grab for things that will help to hide us. We grab for these fig leaves. We grab for all kinds of different varieties of fig leaves. Um, um, So we're not as physically attractive as we'd like to be. So we augment our bodies. And we contort our faces. And we smile differently when we think people are taking a picture of us. And we camouflage our bodies Uh, we lack self-esteem. We lack confidence. And, and so when, when that dawns on us that we're not exactly who we want to be, we tend to take one of two approaches. Either we take every single opportunity to talk about ourselves and to kind of one-up each other in our storytelling and to highlight the most impressive things about ourselves, or we take the opposite approach and we trash ourselves. Sometimes just in our own minds. Sometimes only so that we can hear it ourselves. Other times, we do it out loud so that other people will hear us, maybe hoping, praying that our friends will interject and say, that's not true about you. We grab for fig leaves. Very often, we take really good things and we turn them into fig leaves. Like morality, for example. We want to look like we are as pure as driven snow because we have secret sins and we don't want people to know our secret sins. Or what about this one? Cleanliness. Heaven forbid a stranger would knock on the door, someone we don't even know from Adam, Heaven forbid a stranger would knock on our door and see that our house is a mess. We might never see this soul again for the rest of our lives. Why would we care what our houses look like? Because it's a fig leaf. And if we can present the illusion that we have a perpetually clean house, people might think that we ourselves are clean. If other people think that I'm clean, then maybe I will start to feel clean, and I will start to feel in control, and I will start to feel put together. Here's a big one. Religion is a fig leaf. We use our religiousness to appear so holy and to appear so put together. And when we're feeling really, really religious, we speak with all these religious platitudes and all these religious cliches so that we can kind of keep our existential doubts at bay. And when people ask us really problematic and challenging questions, we offer them really cheap answers and pretend like we find them satisfying. We pretend like God never disappoints us. We pretend like we go to church and everything's just fine. We perpetuate a certain religious culture as if that culture itself was derived from the Word of God, even though it's not. It's just our culture. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this to our bodies, our beautiful bodies? Why do we do this to our brilliant minds? Why do we do this to our gentle souls? 
It's shame. We have so much shame. I found it interesting uh, to kind of reread um, the first few chapters of Genesis, um, spatially observing the spaces, ob- observing the spaces between the characters in the story. So here's what I mean. At the beginning of the story of Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, and even the beginning of Genesis 3, all of the characters are very together. They're very close physically, and they're connected, and they're in each other's space, and they're very reliant on each other. But then halfway through chapter 3, they all begin to separate from each other. And you get all of these, if you're an English lover, English teacher, you get all these distancing prepositions. All of the prepositions start pushing people away from each other. And the people are hiding from one another. Uh, uh, the, serpent, the serpent is forced to crawl way down on the ground. And then there's enmity between the serpent and the woman. And Eve's desire is way up there for her husband. And Adam, the husband, disgracefully and sinfully is ruling over his wife. They've all separated from one another. They've all drawn away into their own corners. They've all been slotted for their painful, isolated destinies. The serpent is cursed to be stuck on the ground. Adam is cursed to be in conflict with the earth and with his work, and Eve is cursed to be in conflict with her own body and with the people she loves. The battle lines are drawn, and everybody is running in the opposite direction. In their own shame, these three characters draw further and further and further from one another. But then, the most incredible thing happens. In verse 21, just as Adam and Eve are beginning to withdraw into their own corners, withdraw into their own shame, God does something really, really unexpected. He, did this stick out to you? He makes garments of skin for these two people, and he clothes them. Now think about that. Why on earth would God make garments of skin for these people? Their nakedness isn't the problem, is it? Their, their bodies aren't suddenly evil or ruined in a way that they weren't before. God knows perfectly well that putting clothes on these two pe- broken people isn't actually going to fix anything at all. So why does he do that? Why, and why is that his first action? Why does he make these garments? Here's why. It's a glimpse into the heart of God. You know how some children um, are afraid of monsters under their bed, afraid of monsters in their closet so they can't go to sleep? I've heard of parents who will take a, a, a water bottle, a spray bottle, and they'll write on there, monster spray. And they'll take that into their child's room every night and they'll hand it to the little boy or the little girl and they'll say, they'll say okay, let's monster-proof this place. And so the little boy or the little girl goes into the closet, squirt, squirt. Goes over to the bed, squirt, squirt. They put the monster spray down for the next night 
and they go to sleep, and they're out. It occurs to me that is no different from God sewing these garments for Adam and Eve. Why does a loving parent make monster spray for their child? Because a loving parent accommodates their child's insecurities, even their irrational insecurities. Why does God give Adam and Eve garments? Because a loving God accommodates his people's insecurities, even their irrational insecurities. The first thing the creator of the universe does is make monster spray. He helps his creatures manage their shame. He helps them take the first step to get comfortable in their own skin. I want to use a word here to to describe God, and it's going to sound like I'm being condescending about God, even though everything we ever say about God is descending, this is going to sound especially condescending, but God strikes me as so adorable in this text. I don't mean teeny tiny cute. I just mean look at his adoration for these creatures. God is adorable in this text. Of all of the times for him to come out of the woodwork and be so adorable, Folks, our gigantic God is adorable. Now, it should be noted that along with the the monster spray, along with the the garments, um, (laughs) along with this great accommodation that he makes for Adam and Eve, God also puts into motion the plan for humanity's redemption. He sneaks it in there. It's in verse 15. He says that the son of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He's talking about Jesus. But Adam and Eve don't know about that. Jesus schmeezes. Who's that? What they do know is that they can feel the love of their father on their bare skin. God is adorable. And he accommodates us even in our irrational fears. Friends, God is with us in our shame. He's for us in our shame. He knows us in our shame. And it's as if he's begging us not to be ashamed of our shame. Adorable. Look at the love which with the Father loves us. And let's consider the love with which we might love one another. Pray with me.
God our Father, we thank you that the son of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We thank you that on a cosmic level, you have begun something which will put everything right, correct every wrong, undo every injustice, and make every wrong thing come untrue. We also thank you, God, that since on a moment-by-moment basis we cannot grasp that reality and we can't feel that reality and we can't know that reality, that you also surround us with your love so that even while you are working all things out on a cosmic level, you are showing us your adoration on a molecular, heart-to-heart person-to-person level. We thank you, God, for your love. We thank you for its grandness and for its intimateness. In Christ's name we pray.